Hey there, Next Real listeners, this is Andy. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting change. As you may have noticed, we have been including episodes of one of our other shows, Movies We Like, in this feed. Well, we are thrilled to announce that Movies We Like has grown so much that it's now ready to strike out on its own. From now on, to catch the latest episodes of Movies We Like, you'll want to head over to its dedicated feed and hit that subscribe button. We've got plenty of other great content lined up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. Don't worry, though, the next Real Film Podcast isn't going anywhere. We'll still be bringing you the same in-depth discussions and analysis of your favorite films right here in this feed. So if you love what we do with Movies We Like, be sure to search for it in your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Thanks for being a part of our podcast journey, and now, let's get back to the show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to the Next Reels Movies We Like, part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. I'm Andy Nelson. That over there is Pete Wright. Hi, I'm Pete Wright. On today's episode, we have invited Ross Rigi to talk about Terrence Malick's 1998 film, The Thin Red Line, movie he likes. Ross, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Looking forward to chatting about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a wonderful pick, and I'm thrilled to get a chance to uh, to add some Terrence Malick to our lineup. We haven't uh, surprisingly, after all these years of podcasting, we have not talked about any Malick films. Which is, uh, it's not seems... surprising. It's not surprising because I have so little patience for a lot of Terrence Malick, <laughs> and I can't believe we haven't talked about this one. Yeah. There's so much Terrence Malick I can't watch, but this one deserves to be talked about. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not I, surprising. I, I wasn't sure. I figured it was a long shot that it might have already been in the in the catalog so um glad to break the ice with it yeah 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 for sure um before we really start digging into that let's talk a little about you and the work that you do uh you've been uh in the world of cinematography for uh for quite some time and i i think your your breakout film was uh kings of summer is that right yeah i suppose so i mean it was kind of i, I did some small you know smaller uh indie films as as 
as we all do kind of coming up and, and, uh, and not that that Kings of Summer was big, but for me at the time, that was the first kind of feature project that I did where I was kind of looking at it like, Oh, if I, if I screw this up, it's over. Like this is, this is the, this is the <laughs> chance, you know, it's, it's, you either go up or you go, or you go down. So, um, yeah, so uh, that was kind of the first big undertaking. So there's a lot of firsts uh, with that movie for me. Oh, Kings! It's just a it's a beautiful, beautifully shot film. Like it's a, it is. I should say maybe luckily it's a film you can be proud of, right? Yeah, it's got to feel good. Right? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And of course, that's that's ironically or not ironically tied into the the Malik of it all because obviously that was there's some reference in there for us. So. Well, I was going to say, because I, I mean, in the uh, the reviews of the film, Hollywood Reporter compared the quality of the filmmaking to that of Terrence Malick, which I think is is uh, funny and fitting, as you said, that we're going to be talking about. It, so, <laughs> Yeah, we'll take that compliment any day. Yeah, right. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. Uh, so uh, talk a little bit about your career. Uh, like, how did you get into cinematography? Uh, you know, kind of the journey that you've had to get get to where you are today. You know, I didn't grow up as a as a big uh, film nerd. You know, I spent most of my time in middle school, high school watching dumb comedies. You know, I grew up on like uh, Monty Python and Mel Brooks and and then into, you know, Tommy Boy, Dumb and Dumber and Happy Gilmore and all that. And then um, but I was super interested in stop motion animation, uh, claymation, Lego animation. And then in high school, uh, a friend of mine and I, uh, we were in a, a class that allowed us instead of doing term papers, we could do a painting or do a video or, and so this is before YouTube time. So, uh, we're like, great. We pulled out our parents' handy cams and we started making videos instead of having to write papers, which was great. And part of the way we made it more interesting was we started building puppets and doing a lot of puppet based, uh, you know, recreations of the black death and stuff like that. And, um, and from there, both of us were kind of like, well, maybe we should study puppetry or something when we move, you know, everybody's taking these tests and, you know, maybe I'll be an architect. Maybe I'll get into finance. And he and I were both, we sat our parents down. We were both like, let's, we want to go to the University of Connecticut and get a, a bachelor's degree in puppetry, which they, to this day, I believe they still have. And our parents were like, well, <laughs> so, uh, and so <laughs> let me get this straight, Ross. Is the puppet an accountant or an yes. attorney at any point? Can we, <laughs> I mean, that, can that we was, refine that? That would have been a good adjustment where it's like, well, what if the, what if the character becomes that? Does that make it yeah, more general? Right. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, so, so both of us kind of pivoted into film television, um, you know, and try to try to learn more about those disciplines, which we clearly had a lot to learn uh, as we both continued discovering. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I managed to get into film school at NYU and, um, and then realized I wasn't a director, was a terrible writer, um, enjoyed photography. And so kind of from there, I just kind of fell into it. You know, there's a lot of people shooting material in film school and needing people to shoot it. So. I, I have to know how. What is the lesson that told you you were not all those other things? Uh, man. Well, the d- directing. I think. I think right off the bat, I was realized how much I didn't know from a technical standpoint. And then, you know, kind of like I was saying before, when I first got to film school, I realized how. I mean, there people were speaking languages way above and beyond anything that I understood. You know, the people that were watching French New Wave stuff when they were 14 years old, and I was like, I'd never been exposed to that. So <clears throat> I just felt very out of my element there. But the one thing that I that I did kind of gravitate towards was all the still photo electives that I was taking. So I was in the darkroom all the time, and I was like coming back, and anytime we talked about photography or cinematography, that was my wheelhouse. And so I just kind of, I took that fork in the road and, and everything was kind of behind me at that point. Um, 
And it, I think for me, it, it gave me, I consider that early enough for me that it gave me a, an opportunity to learn about editing, directing, all those other things that you still have to do in film school to learn about that through the the mindset of a cinematographer. You know, what is my role in relation to supporting that instead of trying to do that independently and then jump back. So to me, that that it kind of worked out great, even though if, if, if I went back into another life and planned it, it would have gone differently. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as, right. as always, you were learning on film, it sounds like. Uh, and um, was there much of a transition uh, for you in the in the idea of capturing images as you shifted over to kind of digital cinematography? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, I think like for most people, it was in, in a lot of ways, it made things easier. Um, to, to, you know, be able to see exactly what you're, exactly what you're making, you know, to a certain degree, uh, with technology. I mean, I, I, I've had that conversation many times with people. If we had DSLRs when I was in film school, how much different that would have made the experience for, for all of us, for better or for worse. I mean, there was still, I think the Canon XL2 was the, the, the big video camera at the time, which looked really cool, uh, from the outside. Um. But, uh, you know, nothing, nothing beats the, when you have the ability to, um, to just cut on the spot and shoot as much as you want, um, it, it, it would have changed for me personally, a lot of the ways I would approach it, you know, like learning the, how much time it takes to do one splice on a steam back, you realize how, how important two frames can be in, in the cut and the pace of a shot of a, of an edit. So, uh, right, yeah. so I think a lot of like, if we had had access to all that stuff, I probably would have made a lot more stuff in, in film school and early on after, but, um, it probably would have, wouldn't have been any better. It probably would have been worse to be honest. I, I know there are, there are, uh, DPs who look at, you know, every project's its own project or every project's a project. You get behind the camera, you shoot what's on the script, you make it, you know, as much as, of your own as you can, but I'm looking at your catalog and it's, it, it's kind of got some extraordinary swings, right? Like from, right, we talk about Kings of Summer to, you know, The Catch, Raised by Wolves. You've got some Grey's Anatomy in there. But then we get into to Walking Dead, World Beyond, like 11 episodes there. Weird, the Al Yankovic story. And, and of course, our your current, you know, in current release, The After Party. All of these have such a distinct cinematic flavor i how do you approach these tonally like are you thinking about that when you put your eye up and up to the camera well i mean definitely everything's subjective with what you're working on and and i think for me part of it you know starts with the projects you choose so i mean after party is kind of an interesting example as an overarching as you list everything off because that that in and of itself what makes it so um exciting to jump into in the beginning is that there's this I see it as this opportunity to try so many different things. Um, and I, I mean, I think a lot of people probably look at it this way, but for me, I feel like one of the biggest parts of our backbone as a, as a filmmaker in any discipline is that you never stop learning things. You know, it's, it's wild to think that I've like, if anybody would call me experienced, you know, that I've been around for a while, cause I still feel so young, you know, I work, you know, I, I bring my keys on. I'm constantly, one of the first things I will tell a gaffer, a key grip when I work with them is, is like, just, you know, I'll tell you what I like, what kind of my tendencies are, what tools I like to have in the kit. But I want, I want to try new stuff. I want you to sh- like, when we're doing a day exterior with an overhead, what do you typically use? And let's look at it, you know? Um, and I find that if I'm not, you know, at some point, if I, if I stop trying to find new stuff, then I should start looking to do something different, I suppose. What do you, what do you think your reputation is with your keys? What would they say about you working with you? 
what I would think uh, and hope that they would say, I think is true, is that I'm I'm pretty patient and uh, warm with with people. I'm very like my people are very important, supportive, collaborative, and uh, you know I've I've also worked with a handful of directors that are not always the easiest um, and not in a ba- not really in a bad way, but I think that's part of my makeup is to try to to meet people where they're at and. And Malik is another interesting example I know we'll get into, but, you know, and I've never met him <clears throat> or seen him work, but, but you get the sense that they can be, people can take them one way or the other. They can be very polarizing. Um, and I find that I, you can take the biggest personalities and as long as you can, you can get to know them and understand what makes them tick and what their motivations are, it actually can be a wonderful experience, very rewarding. So I guess that goes hand in hand with, you know, choosing all sorts of different tones and styles to work with because it stretches you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's, uh, there's a lot to constantly exploring and, and thinking of different ways to tell stories and, and using the tools that you have. Cause I mean, the tools are constantly evolving. That is certainly the case. Um, let's now start shifting our attention over to, uh, Terrence Malick's film, the thin red line. In this world, a man himself is nothing. And there ain't no world but this one. I've seen another world. Sometimes I think it was just my imagination. If I go first, I'll wait for you there. On the other side of the dark waters. Why should I be afraid to die? I belong to you. We're going straight up that hill, Evan. How many men do you think it's worth? How many lives? There's nowhere we can hide except in each other. Go! Go! I killed a man. Worst thing you can do, nobody can touch me for it. Make no difference who you are. No matter how much training you got, how tough a guy you might be, you're in the wrong spot at the wrong time, you're gonna get it. I've lived with these men, sir, for two and a half years, and I will not order them all to their deaths. You know, a lot of people say it's the best contemporary war film that has been made, arguably. And uh, Terrence Malick is certainly a director who... Uh, gets some, um, you know, a lot of praise and also a lot of people scratching their heads with the stuff that he does. And I think, I, I, I know we're, are you, we're just bringing... t- are you just trolling me right now? <laughs> like, I know you're talking about me and you don't have to hide it. <laughs> well, I mean, he, you know, I, before we start talking about the visuals, cause I definitely want to talk about the visuals with you, um, as a cinematographer, but I would love to start this conversation with, um, Terrence Malick's use of voiceover, which has been, such an ongoing element of his films right from the beginning that he's kind of introduced. And it's such a fascinating thing to hit this film, which, um, you know, I, it has, it was based on a book it, it's previously been made that, um, I think it, it's probably, I haven't seen it, but my, my, guess is it's probably a lot more straightforward of an adaptation of the story. And here we are coming to this one, which definitely tells the story, but also has this very pensive look at each of the characters and and kind of their internal thoughts and everything as they're going through this war. So in the scope of this type of storytelling, I mean, what does it bring to the table for you, Ross? 
I think it goes hand in hand right away with the the kind of meditative quality of of his work. Um, I mean, I think if you're if you're watching any of his films, your first Malick experience, let's call it, as soon as you go right into the voiceover, and it's not just like an introduction thing. I think it's immediately telling you, look, this is we're going to be in in our actors' heads, and we're going to ideally be in your head. And it's supposed to be very thought-provoking and uh, inner, you know, inner dialogue, inner monologue. So to me, I think, you know, from film to film, it's obviously used differently depending on what the what the ensemble or, or lack thereof is. But, you know, like in, in Thin Red Line, it, it makes sense the way it starts. Um, but then suddenly you'll just have, uh, for me, for me, even rewatching it, there are a few places where it's like, oh, okay, we're back in voiceover land, but it's it's with this character now. And so... Even though it might be, it might be jarring at times. It's it's the same way that I think he uses his edit, like in this movie, where you get into the battle scenes, and some, sometimes it feels really choppy, and the pace might feel off, but it's very intentional. So I think, to a certain degree, I also find that when he steps into those voiceovers, sometimes it wakes you up a little bit. I've had the experience of kind of getting lulled in and out of sequences when I watch his 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 stuff, and sometimes that voiceover kind of wakes you up a little bit but it's also not unlike the human experience i feel like so i, I can relate to it pete uh you're um <laughs> coming into this uh you're like noted Terrence antagonist Malick. of voiceover <laughs> well not just not voiceover but i mean just terrence yeah. malick in general you're like yeah he there's there's some terrence malick that's hard to take but i mean with this particular film with the voiceover i mean what does how does it work for you no it does it, i think I, I think what ross said is uh, right on for me too because it's the it's the meditation of the experience and it's the interpersonal sort of the the head voice of each of these characters as they talk to me and for some reason i don't find myself driven to a mad rage over voiceover because this isn't necessarily about the filmmaker not trusting me to get it the the voiceover is about their experience, like adding to their lived experience in this war zone. And the, the thing that bugs me quite specifically about most voiceovers is it's there because the filmmaker doesn't trust me in the audience to understand what they're doing. Yeah, it becomes expositional. Yeah, maybe they needed it because they didn't trust themselves, right? I, I don't know. But the this this works for me, and I think it's the malickness of it. Because let me tell you, he suffers no fools in his movies writ large. In this movie, quite specifically, like he has a lot of trust in the audience that you're going to ride along with the just massive set of characters and faces and experiences, and um, and I still find uh, that the voiceover does does work it doesn't get in the way even the structure because i mean this story starts with you know we've got uh jim caviezel uh a wall and he's living in this little village and then we, they see a boat and the boat is approaching and then suddenly we cut and now he is in the brig and sean pan is talking to him other filmmakers would have had that whole capture of these these two soldiers who were AWOL, and we'd kind of have that whole part of the story. And this one, we just, it, like, he's trusting us to understand, you know, we see them, they see the boat, now they're on the boat. Like, we get all of those pieces we don't need, and maybe it was there in the five-hour cut originally. But, like, that's, that's something that I, I feel that Malik understands, that we understand storytelling, and we kind of can put those pieces together without having to have every piece explained the whole way. 
Yeah. What I'd be curious too is to what extent he's he's considering it as I, I'm. I believe the audience is going to be smart enough, and the, I don't need to connect the dots for them. Versus, is he just? Is it just utter confidence where he's like, I, "This is this is the story I'm telling." Yeah. Take it or leave it. Follow it or don't follow it. And you know, as we know, there there are plenty of places in plenty of his movies where people are just like, "I don't I don't get this at all." And I, I don't, frankly, I from what I've read about about him and what I see in his films, I'm kind of like, I don't think he cares. <laughs> you know, it's kind of <laughs> like you get me or you don't, you know? Yeah. Well, he certainly seems to have drifted farther along that path. Sure. Uh, yeah. As his career has gone. That's for yeah. sure. And I'll be honest, I haven't watched, I haven't watched a lot of his recent stuff. And I almost wonder if that's for the better. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I haven't either. I think um, the um, the new world, I think, might be the last one of his I've seen, which is, I mean, quite a while. I mean, that was the one right after this, and then so um, yeah. No, no, no. I take it back. I saw um, Tree of Life. Uh, the Tree of Life. Yeah. yeah. That's. I mean, that's really. He's. I. I think you're. <laughs> that that helps me provide a framework around their sort of ideology. Like they just don't. They, it, it is quite possible that they just don't care what my experience is. This is the story they're going to tell. This is Terrence Malick. This is Darren Aronofsky. This is like, um, uh, what's his name? It would be Penguins. What is his name? Uh, off the top Werner of my head, Herzog? I can't remember. Werner Herzog. Like they just don't. They. How this I is the, the ultimate confidence. Because I had gave you such a great cue. Stop it. Uh, <laughs> I, that they have such great confidence that this is the this is the story that needs to be told and. They're the ones who are are they're capable of telling it, and come hell or high water, that's the story we're going to see. Yeah, I'd um, rather have that than get banged over the head. With, you know, yeah, for sure. Well, it's the art in filmmaking, and and it's I, I I suppose in the world of filmmaking, there's always that challenging line of art and commerce because obviously you need to make a lot of money to pay off the amount of money it costs to make a movie, and with a filmmaker like Terrence Malick, who I mean this you know, from reading about this, he kept it on budget and didn't go over, uh, even though, I mean, they were shooting for like 100 days. It was definitely a lengthy production. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where um, I, I think that it ended up making money and, and he was able to succeed, but he's able to keep his his kind of position as an artist and do the stuff that he wants. And I mean, he doesn't like the preview screenings. Uh, you know, he's a very private person anyway. And so I think by maintaining the artistic focus of the story and the storytelling style that he's employed, I think he's, you know, been able to kind of keep that going. And it's, I think that's hard though, in this industry, especially today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some, somehow, you know, with, with Badlands and um, Days of Heaven, he earned something to, cause what I've read about getting into Thin Red Line, there was kind of this, everybody was so excited. He was, he was coming back to directing and I think there was, it seems like there was this kind of willingness for a lot of people to give him more room than even, even in the late nineties, they were giving direct, most directors, I think, um, you know, and, and as far as, as I'd be curious how he worked his, his diplomacy during the, during the process, when you have producers over your shoulders being like, well, what are we doing today? How come we're not shooting the scene that was on the schedule? And I don't even know if his schedule works that way. So there's yeah, just right. kind of like, like as DPs, the story, you know, between film and digital is like the, you know, as soon as we change from film to digital, one of the things that started to go away was that kind of magician implicit trust that you have in a DP that you're like, well, I don't know exactly what it's going to turn out like I'm seeing a, you know, a tap, a black and white tap or whatever. 
Um, but I trust the person that I hired to do the project. And so it's now we've gotten into this, you know, 4k monitors with the full gamut and, um, and everybody's looking at you're on a commercial and people are like, well, what is that? What is that little, you know, it's slightly that red feels a little yellow and like, well, you know, let's not get too buried in that. So he, he, yeah, to me right. is, he has been able to maintain that kind of trust or at least kind of the protective barrier barrier to be able to work the way he likes to work, which is great. Yeah. And, you know, I suppose there's a little bit of that element of like the filmmakers of old, like John Houston, who is like, I'm going to go shoot on location because I know the producers aren't going to want to come follow me there. And, (laughs) you know, here here Malik is doing this thing, filming in the the rainforest in Australia. And I imagine that the producers were, uh, I don't know, I, I don't know any of the stories, but, you know, there's there is that that line that they're probably like, you know, I'm sure he's got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like that going. I mean, when you deliver, you know, people yeah, argue. Absolutely. Like, yeah. I, I got a, I got a, uh, okay. It's a Rube question. It's a practical question. It's the, the practicalities of shooting a movie like this, because the thing that strikes me so, so deeply about this movie as I'm watching it last night was, first of all, they're shooting super close to people crawling through grass in waving fields of grass on a hillside moving up to this embankment, right? They were there shooting for six months. And, or or, as you said, 100 days or whatever. The Battle of Guadalcanal was six months. What? (laughs) How, How? How far you shoot that? Like, there is, I saw not a single sign of trampled grass, trampled under camera rails. Like, what What are you thinking as you watch this movie? Do you ever find yourself looking at it and saying, I wonder how they did that? 100%. Um, I do remember reading the, uh, the American Cinematographer article about it. And um, I know one thing they did, which now I can't, I can't not think about when watching it, um, is they used an Aquila, a super long crane called the Aquila. And they would do these, basically use it as just a, like a, a dolly that wouldn't touch anything. And it would still have an arc, but that enabled them to get past that inevitable thing. I mean, I've I've been on sets in small fields, and no matter how many disclaimers you give a crew, stuff gets trampled, <laughs> like, immediately. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think... I mean, this stuff is just pristine for yeah. the first half of the movie. It is pristine. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a, it's such an, it's such an important element too. that the, the, uh, the blowing of that, of that tall grass is such a huge lyrical piece of the yes. puzzle. So, but you know, uh, scouting, scouting, of course. And I know they still use a lot of steady cam, a lot of handheld stuff, but yeah, you, you, any of those moments where you're hunkered down in the, in the grass with, with the soldier and they're, they're, you know, like there's this one moment where, where one of the guys is like touching a leaf and the leaf curls up and, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting to have that perspective that that was, you know, how the war was fought there. They, they were just buried, buried, you know, in the dirt. And but any filming any of those moments, you're you're carving out. It's like, where are the apple boxes go and the ferny pads and the, you know, but an assistant needs to be next to you. So I'm sure part of that is also just the way Malik works is probably a lot more low profile um, would be my guess. But but in terms of, of equipment, I know that like that crane, I've never worked with it. But to me, was probably the the most critical uh creative solution that they came up with which was great yeah really fascinating let's um let's take a step back a little bit we kind of jumped in with some specifics but you know what is the reason what is it that you love so much about this film and and the reason that you picked it to talk about today well i obviously my my roots in reference with 
with Kings of Summer was a Malick thing. And the first project I did, first movie I was really involved in when I moved out to LA, and this was actually before I even had a place in Los Angeles, was a, um, a friend of mine who straight out of film school was his first movie that was called Redland. My friend that I was telling you guys about with, with the puppetry and everything, he was a classmate of his. And uh, so my friend was was uh, tasked with doing all the second unit. We were shooting up in uh, by Arcata um, in Humboldt. And, uh, you know, period piece. And that reference was 100% Malick, Badlands, uh, Days of Heaven. And I hadn't seen the movies at the time. And so that was like accompanying my first trip out to California to work on a project, shooting 35 anamorphic. I was watching all this Malick stuff and I was like, what, what is this? You know, and, and my job being go shoot second unit. And it was a very open-ended, like shooting elk grazing in the morning. So my friend and I would wake up at four and we would shoot for the first three hours of the day. We'd go nap in the middle of the day. You know, unless we needed to come join the main unit and then we would go shoot, shoot at sunset. It was kind of a dream job. You know, here's a, here's a couple thousand feet of film, go drive around and discover (laughs) stuff. And, you know, a handful of stuff we shot is, is in the movie. And then the rest of it is just this fantastic memory. And so I think I just in my, in my filmmaking DNA, I've just like always, always responded to the, that kind of dream idea of going out into nature and just shooting the most beautiful stuff you can. And in, ironically, in Kings of Summer, as much as I got to do some of that, we hired a, a, a friend who's an operator slash DP at the time who's since blown up and he's in his own DP world, uh, Mike Berlucci. Um, and he was like, we would send him out and just be like, oh, go shoot. We're, we're shooting single camera right now. Go shoot nature stuff. And there's a lot of nature stuff without actors in it in Kings of Summer that he just was out like running gunning on his own, which was great. That's fantastic. So he got to steal that dream from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like no, just always fail at the job you don't want, man. Yeah. <laughs> John Toll is the cinematographer on this particular film, and um, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the cinematography and especially the blending of the natural world and war. And I, I, I think that's something that definitely uh, is another attraction that Malik clearly has in the projects that he's he's made. But just the cinematography, just watching some of the shots of like the sunlight um, kind of dapple coming down through the leaves with the camera like pointed straight up or just all the nature. Like there's so many animals, like the creatures, the the uh, flora and fauna that he's kind of got and and people's interactions with them. I mean, just talking about what you were just saying about kind of this, this going out and capturing this sort of footage. I mean, you know, how does it work for you in this film and the way that Malik's using it? Uh, to to me, it's quintessential, Malik. I think it's I think it's great. I mean, I, I obviously there's there's also kind of that elephant in the room that this came out right right. What is it after Saving Private Ryan? Yeah, right after. And which I'm a huge fan of that film as well. But they're very different takes on a very similar subject, and um, and I enjoy them both in different ways. In this in this sense, I think it 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 helps push the divide between the experience, the intimate experience you're having with the soldiers themselves and the world that they're in. There's this kind of like, it's such a beautiful environment. It's such a, I think the statement about it's such a, it's this such a beautiful world. And you have the villagers too, which are kind of this peaceful, this peaceful tribe that you're introduced to. And then right next to it is you're, you're jarred out of it by this, this kind of, brutality and the the kind of like animal side of man uh the 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 dark animal side of man in war 
And so I, that's the, that's the way I read into it. And so I think without, if you're going to make a kind of a contemplative story where you're just with the soldiers and having their experience, I think you need to have that breadth of what the environment is like without having to include them all the time. So, um, so to me, it's, it's, you know, what, what I would expect and what I enjoy about, about his films. But, um, you know, but I also, I think part of the reason why I have a soft spot for it is because I also understand how challenging it can be to be able to get that stuff practically in production. You know, I've done jobs where it's been a priority and I've done other jobs where it's like, it would be great to get it if we could. And if it's, if, unless it's like, you really have a plan, it is so hard to, to, prioritize those spontaneous those serendipitous moments where the sun is hitting just right and you're like, like I, I i read a story um i was reading some articles uh this last weekend and i read a story an actor was saying something about you know we, we we were prepping this big sequence and they have airplanes they're queuing the airplanes to take off and we're all in we're all dirty we're all crouched down and stuff and then right before we started he, he said action he looked over and he told john toll he said oh look there's a red-tailed eagle and then they like flipped the camera over and started shooting this eagle flying around while there's like airplanes like resetting. Um, he said, that's smelling. Um, yeah. And, and so, but, but that's like, to me is a great example of if you're, if you're not a slave to what, if nature offers you something in the moment yeah, and you're not willing to kind of set everything aside. And I can't even imagine the balls to just be like, you know what, pull down everybody else, pause for a second. Yeah, but that's the way you get that stuff. And so I, when when I see that in a film, and I know I know his process is so u- unique that way, I can I can really uh, um, appreciate that more because I know that, that, that a lot of things have to get pushed out of the way. That big footprint of a of a big movie has to get paused for something that is so simple and so doc, you know, and so verite. That's one of the things that I think is so special about this film in particular. It's that there's only so much Nick Nolte screaming that the movie can handle before it buckles if you don't have the greenery, if you don't if you don't realize. And I think that's my impression of this movie that Malik recognizes the story is the space between Nick Nolte screaming at me and the the beauty of this world that that it's butting up against. And that's that's the thing that makes this movie special at three hours at five hours like that's where the that's where the movie lives yeah yeah 100 percent. to that point I, I think that i can't remember if it's nolte or um it might be nolte which of the characters has the line about how it's really just this fight for property and there that's really kind of what this is and, and to a certain extent that's so much of what war is anyway of like we want to take this piece of land now they're going to try to take it back and the kind of the whole back and forth and but in the context of like saying you know it's a fight to get this piece of property you know showing so much of that it's and, and not just in the sense of like well we want to see the land because that's what they're fighting over but really it's just like it's putting it into a different context and it's like it's this recognition that there's so much more to it than just this piece of property you know like there's this 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 beauty to it this kind of connection that to a certain extent war almost requires you to like remove yourself from that connection and i mean it's the humanity anyway you're removing yourself from the fact that you're just killing these people like it's it's horrifying what you have to do in the context of war but that's what it is and and, like the war machine shuts all of that off and it's like we've got to get this property and like that's their focus and that's their drive and it's just like you lose all of that and so i don't know how this film could exist without all of these pieces because so much of it is like that recognition of of these people 
to a certain extent, kind of losing their souls over the course of the story here. Yeah, yeah. The, the sort of, I, I don't even know how many pieces I, I have in this movie that, that are broken up in my head, but there is another piece, and it's the performative piece. It's that we have these characters who are, to the same extent that we have the walk and talk with Nick Nolte saying, you, you know, how many people, how many of your men are you willing to lose for this cause, right? And really what he's saying is, how many of your men are you willing to lose for my promotion, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's really what we're talking about. And so you have these characters like Jim Caviezel and and you have Adrian Brody, and you have John Cusack, and they're, to me, their faces on camera aren't to do anything more than, by doing nothing and playing straight, ridicule the George Clooney's and the Nick Nolte's and the, the their superiors, who are completely fungible resources. And I think that's another layer of sort of conflict that, that Malick is able to sort of conjure up almost effortlessly that I think makes it really special. And then you have Sean Penn, who's just sort of in between the two. Like he's just sort of that wizened Sean Penn, who again shows up in the, in, in the Ben Stiller movie on the Hill shooting cats. Like it's that same guy. Uh, uh, And so I, I'm curious from your perspective behind the camera, as you're looking at great performances, how aware are you that you're capturing great performances? Um, I would say that the the most straightforward, easiest ones for me have been when I've shot um, great comedians, great Im- improv stuff. Um, a lot of that's, I mean, we did a, a handful of that stuff in Kings of Summer, but prior to that, just doing weird shorts and stuff. When, when you're going off script, because obviously you know what's happening with the script. And um, I think in comedy, when you start going off script or when people are starting to riff and you see it take a new life, uh, to me, that's one of those things that's very, very quickly is like, you're hoping all this stuff can stay in the cut at that point, you know, when you're when you're trying to compose yourself laughing behind the camera, because things so unexpected are coming out. But, um, but I think in terms of dramatic stuff, um, I, I think we get I've gotten to moments a few times where uh, we're shooting something and often it's, you know, it's a, it's a director who will, you see a rhythm happening, you see somebody building to something and it's, there's a kind of like a hush in my experience, there's kind of a hush over the room and, you know, everything becomes very kind of tender and everybody's supporting that moment. And the director comes in, gives a quick note or, or just resets it. And you know, at that moment, it's like the, the it kind of feels like the heat is on. And suddenly I feel like I'm in, in a stadium with a thousand people looking at me being like, don't like, you know, I'm like, oh, what if I accidentally bump the camera in the middle of this? You know, I feel like I, I, I will ruin, you know, like the the State of the Union address or something. So so I think I think there are just some kind of um, instinctual moments where you're suddenly like you're like, I think I'm in the presence of something really special right now. You know, and and that's not to say, obviously, we're everything we do is is a is a is a wonderful opportunity. We're always working around these incredibly talented people. But, yeah, there are some times where you're like, even I, I don't know how a performer would feel, but there's got to be points where they're like, wow, I I'm really feeling this right now, you know? Um, and, uh, when you're around that, it's kind of, that's nice because I think everybody feels it, you know, in a different way. That's gotta be really interesting, um, perspective on a Malik film. Like I can't imagine, uh, I mean, obviously all of the voiceover stuff, I, I shouldn't say obviously, but I'm, I'm assuming that all of that stuff he records after production. I mean, it's possible he records some of it beforehand, but there's, there's, different methods but just the idea of of filming just the story i mean everybody's here just kind of capturing the essence of the story 
uh, with somebody who really probably might be the only person who really has the full vision in his head as far as like what he's trying to do. And as you said, like, hey, let's go film that that hawk over there and just kind of capturing all of those moments. And for the actors, it's interesting. I was reading about um, it was Woody Harrelson and I think it was uh, uh, John Savage, two actors who like finished filming and stayed on set for another month just to watch Malik work because they were so fascinated with, with the way he directs. And the, I mean, the idea of like your story of like being like you're in a production and you're filming, you, you feel that sense, like you're capturing something, but in a Malik film, I imagine that's such a, a difficult, tangible thing to actually get to because you're like, it's so uh, esoteric in so many ways. And so much of it comes connected with all the pieces, kind of the way that he puts it together, but still like there are actors, like people are still able to tell, like there's still something special being captured here. Yeah. I would think that, you know, knowing, knowing the kind of small amount that I, that I understand about the process and watching his stuff, you would think that their uh, actors would be kind of like, is, is that what you wanted? You know, like, I'm not really sure <laughs> right. where does this fit into the grand scheme, but you've got to believe that. And I'm sure there's some actors that find it really difficult to work with him. And some of them probably think, you know, he's, he's the most genius person they've ever worked with. And they're probably both right in their own ways. But I, I would, I would have to assume that he has a way of communicating even if he doesn't, he, he can't say exactly how it's going to fit. He has a way of communicating what the role is and what he's looking for out of it. And there probably is an incredible amount of satisfaction and feeling of achievement uh, by the time you get to that point for an actor to get his approval, to like get through the scene and him for him to say, we, we nailed it. That's great. That was beautiful or whatever. They're probably like, oh my gosh, he's going to do something great. Again, that like, implicit trust that he's had to have earned with them. But it also sounds like, generally speaking, you know, coming into Thin Red Line, I think he probably had a lot of actors that were kind of like, I'll do whatever he tells me. And, you know, I trust him. You can kind of see that in the cast that he built for this thing. It's bonkers. Yeah. Yeah. Even to see, like, Clooney has, I think, one scene, is it? Yeah. yeah. Right. And then, again, you know, so you go, after he came out of that, was he disappointed to find out however much work he put into it? Or was he kind of like, that was, hey, if I get my one scene with Malik, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And that seems like most people were probably content with that. I think I read Adrian Brody was a little disappointed that his part got cut down. Um, I, it sounds like he had a much bigger role in it. Um, and then, uh, I, you know, you hear stories like Sean Penn, I think, not so much this film, but more uh, Tree of Life, that he was like, what happened to, like, the whole thing that I did? Like, the entire <laughs> part was just like a few... Maybe that was it was just his turn at that point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then, like, Bill Pullman, uh, Mickey Rourke, um, uh, I, there were a number of other actors who were in this film and completely just were uh, eliminated. from history. Yeah, Billy Bob Thornton <laughs> did a ton of voiceover for it, and all of that was gone. But I think that speaks again to what Malick is trying to capture here, because I, unlike other filmmakers who's like, this is the story. This is the plot. We're going to capture this and put it on film and, and craft a really excellent film. And there are plenty of amazing films that are made that way. But I think with Malik, there is something that he's trying to reach for. And I think it's, it's less about, I mean, there definitely is a story here. We're watching the story of them trying to take this, uh, this hill in Guadalcanal and uh, the whole thing with property and everything. But to a certain extent, it's less about that and more about like what it does to these people as they're going through this process. Yeah. I th it's an, that's an interesting way to look at it, Andy. It's like you, you hear the, you know, when you talk to sculptors who are like, oh, I see the marble and 
and then the shape emerges from it. Whatever. I don't know how that works. That's not how my mind works. But that's kind of how I think Malik sees film. Like, he's still shaping the entirety of the story all the way to the final edit, right? Like, he's okay making those cuts because it's all right. He had the whole block of marble, and that block of marble included Mickey Rourke and Billy Bob Thornton and and all of that. The thing that interests that, that interests me so much is, like, he has he's such a hands-on director, and, uh, you know, the the act of taking what you shoot and then crafting the final story out of it, that that's such an such an interesting gift in this industry you have like Soderbergh you have like these people who are holding the camera and then taking it and directing and taking that material and going and doing this other thing you know I'm curious your perspective Ross on like you, you seem to have such a natural ability to shoot a thing and then walk away I think before we started you were talking about that you haven't actually seen the third episode of the after party in black and white which is a, a not on film noir how do you how do you live with yourself, man? Like I am so I'm so attached to the creative output. Like how how do you let go and let somebody else take the stuff that you created? Yeah, I mean part of part of it is trusting all the people you're working with, which you know sometimes it takes it takes uh, projects to build up. But you know I I was able I was actually able to spend more time in color on After Party than I than I have on many if not all of my other TV projects. Um, uh, which was great. Dave Hussey, the colorist at Company 3, was, you know, sometimes they're understandably like, hey, I've, let's do a first pass together and then let me do the whole thing and then you come in just... Yeah. But he was like, more time I can have you, the better. There's so much... He he did season one with Carl Hurst, another DP, very talented DP, and he was like, we learned a lot of stuff in season one and he said, he said one thing that was uh, crucial was the more time I had with the DP, the better I can sort out what's going on where and um, and it'll just make things you know, um, much more efficient. So I got to spend a lot of time with him. Yeah. Oddly enough, I don't know if this is gonna make me sound bad, but up up until a few years ago, I, I even shooting on set, I, I wouldn't really wear Comtex and listen to audio that much unless it was a critical timing thing. Um, because I, I just wanted to focus so much on what it what it looked like. I've since changed my tune on that. But in a weird way, it, I think it, it helps me be more comfortable when I go through color because we're rarely ever listening with sound, you know, so you, you, you watch through a scene or watch through a few cuts when you're adjusting color and that's it. And so I see it piecemeal, but I never see the whole thing. And there's something really nice about, you know, holding myself off. So when it, when it comes out or when I go to the first screening, that's when you see all the components come together. You, you hear the score underneath it and you see everything and you're like, wow, it, if I liked how it looked without any of those other elements, then it can only get that much better. But at least it's not, hey, was I even involved in this project? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> to, to that end, can you real quick, just for our listeners, describe a little bit about the color process? and like, Because this is after you've shot the film, you're coming in, and it involves your role a little bit in the kind of the post-production process. Yeah, yeah, and of course it varies, but... Um... Yeah, you you generally will will have a uh, uh, what's called a LUT, a lookup table that is kind of like your like I describe it as a digital film stock. It's a it's a uh, a digital filter, if you will, that you're you've loaded into the camera to interpret um, what it's seeing um, to push it in a certain direction, and then through that filter, you will then on top of it. Um, you're using different lenses, you're using different filters, um, but you'll also use what's a, a CDL, uh, which I think stands for color decision list. Um, but it's a, it's an additional layer of color settings or tweaks that you're doing to it. And then that gets sent down to post. And then 
they'll do a you know rough edit with all that so it looks somewhat like you want it to look later and then once everything once the cut gets locked typically you'll go in and sit with the colorist and do final color pass and really refine it it's an industry that has really kind of grown the whole coloring side of things really kind of since i don't know i always I, my brain always pins um 2000 when uh, as the Cohen brothers did, oh brother Wartho, um, that that really kind of turned that whole thing. So I mean, so Malik and John Toll probably were still doing some some work on the color in post, but it was nowhere near the level that it's kind of at. It's grown into. These oh yeah, days. yeah, big time. And I know even you know even on you know they were shooting film and they were still in the world of choosing a your print stock that you know not only your your shooting stocks but then uh, you know when we print out, here's different options, what we print to and how it's going to affect the look of the film, you know, and they're still doing color grades on top of that. But, but there's much more chemical analog stuff going on in that than, you know, and I don't know how, how deep into effects they get. I feel like a lot of, you know, like when you see an airplane flying overhead, almost always now it's like, well, why we'll just do that. And that's just 3d in post. And I feel like (laughs) in thin red line, it's like, it's all practical. Right, right, right. So, yeah, it's definitely become, I mean, the DI, I mean, I think people still call it a DI, digital intermediate, but that I think that came from the film days where it was like, okay, we're going to scan this all, we're going to do some digital work on it and then put it back out to film. Put it back. Now it's just, yeah. you know, you can call it a DI, but it's, it is digital because you're shot, you're shooting digital and you're, and now it's just, it, you know, every time I go into the bay, it's like, oh, the new release of Resolve or whatever software luster or whatever they're using. Now it, it automatically tracks every face in the frame and it'll recognize which character it is. And if you're like, you know, uh, number three in the call sheet always has a little, we're always going to add a little bit of diffusion to the highlights. It'll like when it ingests the footage, it'll already give you the base of what you're doing. So it's, it's wild. It's like, we're talking about with AI having, having access to this great technology sometimes can be your detriment. You know, sometimes you don't need to add all that stuff, but if, if you're doing it by default, because you can, it can really skew things. So it's interesting how it keeps changing. That's amazing. And, and, you know, I don't know, with this type of storytelling that Malik does that we, we see here, I mean, obviously, he still is, you know, cr- now cranking films out, you know, on a, for Malik, fairly regular basis. But it does make me wonder, like, how much of this stuff is he uh, incorporating into the productions that he's doing? Yeah, yeah, I'd be curious watching some of his newer stuff, um, what he's doing. Yeah. Uh, performances, any performances stand out as, as your favorites in this film? I like Sean Penn. I think he's amazing. I think, um, uh, what, what, uh, what's his name? I've got it written down here somewhere that, uh, Elias Codius. I didn't. Yeah. Elias Codius. I think he was fantastic. I was, I kept looking him up early on when I, when I saw it, I remember the first time and I was like, who is this? I haven't seen him in anything, but he, I thought he was fantastic. I, he's been in a bunch of stuff and, um, but he just, you know, I guess it's easy to get distracted by the, I mean, John C. Riley. I'm a huge fan of him. It's just funny to see him in there as like earlier in his career. And, but yeah, I mean, I, I think Penn really stands out to me. I thought Adrian Brody was fantastic too. Even, even the, the little we get to see him, but, um, his just, I, I, I've always liked his, his work. He's so expressive. Um, and see them all a little bit younger. It's, is is fun <laughs> so many baby faces in this and so they just kept popping faces. up i'm like there's another it's like this i mean Jared it, it, leto yeah it, it, it really was uh you know as you said like everybody was like a new malik film sure sign me up yeah like everybody was in this it's amazing and then you read the list of people who got cut from it it's like yeah and pretty much everyone was in this one yeah well i know at some point 
Brad Pitt and Johnny Depp, I think, met with him. I don't know if it, scheduling or whatever it was, but I mean, it, it gives sense to the, the time, like how big of a deal it was when people heard that he was going to do this film. I think people were like, well, hold on. I, I know I've got other projects going on, but maybe I should do this Malik thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Did you see this in the theater when it came out? I did not, regrettably. But I, oh, yeah, because you, you, you were a little behind on your Malik. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I, yeah. um, you know, I was what in '98. What was I watching? I mean, I guess that was close. To, I was, I was getting into like American Beauty came out what in '99. Yeah, yeah. Gladiator, like a lot of those movies. Then where I was starting to get into stuff beyond the just the dumb comedies and stuff. But and also, no hate for dumb comedies. I still am a big fan. In fact, one of my top three choices to talk about with you guys would have been Best in Show. Um, oh. Christopher Guest fan too. <laughs> that is so, so good. Such um, a such a great film. Yeah, <laughs> we haven't. I don't think we've talked about any guest on this thing. So you ever want to come back next time? Yeah, yeah we, time. We, the fields we, wide open. Yeah. But I also think that that's one of the things that about Malik that I've always responded to and respect is that there's a. It's almost like he's a documentary filmmaker, and and somehow he's able to work the way a documentary filmmaker would work with, but with a script and with the structure of a of a studio movie, uh, which I think is fascinating having the instincts to shoot in a documentary style or to, to approach what's happening around you in documentary style, I think is a, it's, you know, it's a, it's a specific trait that not everybody has. So I've always enjoyed that in his work too. It's so interesting that this, um, as you mentioned earlier, came out the same year as Saving Private Ryan, two very different filmmakers delivering two very different uh, looks at war, but both exceptional films. Like they both ended up making, incredible films the same year that came out and it does make me wonder i know this was a year of the whole uh the the weinstein machine was really in full gear uh, kind of as far as what they were doing with the awards and everything but it does make me wonder if there was some uh people voting for one vote or others voting for the other that ended up not getting either of these uh kind of into the place to win best picture that year yeah i mean you think about like if i was to list some of i mean in terms of great war movies, I feel like they've always been at least a couple of years between, you know, like a really fantastic war movie. And to think about, I, I wish, you know, if I had been a little bit older and a little bit more aware in 98, I, I'd be so curious what the, what the vibe was between it would be different. I mean, nowadays you would definitely see some sort of like, let's pit these, let's pit these two against each other to, to, to benefit both of them. But like, you know, it's always about, well, which one are, which one are you on? You know? But I think yeah. uh, you can, you know, it's like a lot of things. They they can both exist. They can both be great. They can both they can both tell right, us right, right. a similar topic and be great in different ways. Not not at award season, Ross. I'm sorry. Yeah. Not at exactly. award season. <laughs> <laughs> what are some other uh, war films? I mean, you just mentioned kind of this idea of these war great war films periodically. But do you have some others that stand out for you? Um, I mean, Platoon is a great one. Um, Apocalypse Now. Um, I, I'm a big fan of Jarhead. I love Deacon, so you've, you've, I've got to put Jarhead in there. Um, uh, I mean, Hurt Locker was great. I only saw it once, but I remember loving that. But it, it's hard for me to... Th- it doesn't stick out to me the way Apocalypse Now does, you know, like I've seen a hundred times. So uh, I would... I, I think Platoon is is up there. Uh, like we're talking about the, the kind of dehumanization... Um, that it takes for a for a soldier to to deal with what war is, I would imagine. You know, again, it's like we're all talking about this. I've I have no personal experience with it, so it's hard to t- feel like I'm talking out of place to a certain degree. But 
but I think one thing that's so really strong about Platoon is the way early on they like they see just like kind of the changing of these like pulling out of pulling out the kind of soft side of of humanity to prepare these kids to to go into battle which is kind of you know it gives you the shivers who shot who shot uh uh platoon trying to remember who oh oh dear i can't remember if it was a stone uh regular um let me look real quick uh oliver stone platoon uh the dp was uh robert richardson Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I figured it was one of the, one of the greats. Yeah. But, yeah. He did Salvador, uh, this wall street born on the 4th of July, the doors, JFK, heaven and earth, uh, Nixon U-turn. And, uh, it looks like that was about when that was the last time he worked with him. So, um, but that was a good run of working with stone. Yeah. Well, and then he went to Tarantino, which is not a bad move either. Yeah, not yeah, bad move. right. No kidding. But after Platoon was, I forgot was the, um, uh, Full Metal Jacket. You got to leave. Yeah, right. Yeah, which is yeah. another big one. So, so I mean, it's it's one of those subjects. I feel like you know, every few years, if we could get another great perspective on on World War Two, it I, it seems like there's there are constantly new viewpoints to look at it through, which is great. When you look at um, the cinematography that, like, John Toll did in this particular film, I mean, I don't know if you're a John Toll uh, fan. Obviously, he's been a a cinematographer who's been around for quite a while as well. But, I mean, do you, does this stand out as, like, oh, this is a John Toll film, I can tell by the look? Or is it more, does Malick's uh, kind of tone come through more? You know, how do do you see the cinematography for this? Uh, For for me, Malick's tone comes through, I feel like, I mean, Chivo's done a lot of his more recent stuff, but I, I, I feel like you could be the heaviest-handed cinematographer, and I feel like Malick's films are going to look like Malick's films. So, um, and I, I'm a, I'm a fan of Toll for sure, but I, I don't. It's hard for me to to ascribe a signature to to, to him versus that. I mean, uh, like you said, the the New World was his next movie, and I think that was the first one that Lebesgue shot with them, right? Yeah, it wasn't. This was the only one that Toll shot with him. Yeah, and so part of me goes. Um, probably like most DPs would be is like, did something happen where they didn't want to work together again? Or, you know, <laughs> right. and more often than not, especially at this level, people are just like, well, I'm, I have uh, three movies the next three years. Like I, I'm not available next year or whatever it is. But, uh, so it could have been as simple as that, but, um, you know, the new world has a lot of the same beautiful elements and, and I, I don't know, it'd be interesting to do a side by side and try to find, is there a certain tendency that like maybe, Lebeski brought to New World when they were in nature versus what Toll was doing in nature there. But but I also think that a huge element of helping Malik get his vision is to have this this like massive level of flexibility and uh the ability to problem solve on your toes. Because I think there's this also this slight misconception that that Malik only will shoot at sunrise and sunset. And like from what I've read you know, thin red line was like, we're shooting sun up to sundown, but we're shooting everything in between too. And you got to figure out how to, how to deal with that. And so to, to have that, like we were talking about before, a certain level of patience, but also this kind of like a, a doc, good example, documentary, um, and real light, real people director. I've worked with a number of times. Um, I did a documentary with in some commercials, great with real people. His name is Greg Coase. And he's, he always said to me, he said, his mantra is don't react, respond. When something happens, and even if it's in the scripted world, but I think it's particularly appropriate in filmmaking is there's always stuff that goes not according to plan or not what you want to do. 
But instead of spending the time complaining or being bummed out or, you know, it's let's focus on how are we going to fix the problem or how are we going to adjust? Oftentimes it turns into a better, you know, a better result. But by responding, you can save you can save your bitching for later, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I think that I would I would imagine that that's part of the job description when it comes to working with Malik. Where you, there is definitely this like, okay, look, we're going to look over here now. Now, what's the best way we can approach this problem? And I think that's a huge part of being a you know successful cinematographer in general. Well, I suppose, like, I mean, we we're just, again just going back to the 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 hawk that they wanted to catch, like having your eyes open, not just being so focused on, well, we got to get this, this, and this, but always having your eyes open to say, oh, look at that. Does it, what, you know, what do you think of that? What, look at the way that the light's hitting the trees right now. Right. And just, just kind of keeping, keeping that perspective, I imagine. Uh, it's, I mean, it is probably a little different for some, uh, some people in the industry to kind of make that full shift when they're working with somebody like Malik. Yeah. Well, and then also you have to kind of include the it's all the other departments then, you know, it's the, it's the, the ADs, like suddenly a camera starts rolling. It's a script supervisor. You kind of need to get a gauge of where everybody's at, or at least communicate to them that manage their expectations, that, that this is a way we want to be able to work. And I'd, I'd be curious, you know, in, on Malik's sets, do, does he, does he do it at any given point? Or is it a very kind of like, oh, we're seeing this. Okay, everybody let's, you know, like quiet, let's roll camera. Is it, is it a process thing or is it, is it more of a loose you know, there's a lot of like when I work with Jordan that I did Kings of Summer with um, and we just did this pilot together. We, you know, a lot of people use the term 50 50 where you could be on set with actors and you see something cool happening. Somebody's off in the corner, like thinking to themselves, you're like, oh, that's just a cool moment. It has nothing to do with the script or whatever. And you want an operator to, to shoot it while they're doing makeup on somebody else. You know, yell out 50 50. In our case, for whatever reason, we developed the word bratwurst was our like bratwurst. <laughs> So if you say cinematographer safe word <laughs> and, and so yeah exactly and so so that was a thing and 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 if there be people like sound people if they don't know it's it's great if they can kind of sneak over and pick up some stuff too yeah right but it is it's like you want to have a synergy so people support that because it can also go the other way where you just you just shoot it even if the director's like i'll point the camera i'll operate it you know if wardrobe is like well, what, what is this costume appropriate for which, which shoot day is this? What, and people can get bent out of shape if they're not part of the conversation and, you know, reasonably so. So you want to, you want to be able to alleviate people's concerns. It's like, you, we're not going to get upset with you for not doing your job. This is going to be a piece that we don't know what part of the puzzle it is. And I think that's a very Malikian thing to be like, I'm not sure where I'm going to sure. put it, but it's, it's beautiful and I'm going to shoot it and that's it. I imagine that his uh, I, I this would be actually be something interesting to look at the assistant direction team that he has. Like, has that been consistent? Like, yeah, has he found a team? Because that's the team that really does have to manage, like, uh, keep keep all these different departments informed as to what they're doing, how they're structuring all this. Um, I imagine that that's a lot of work for that team to to constantly be shifting. That's that's a good point. I'd be curious to to know if he has one team that he he kind of. You would think if he does one project and it works well and they know him, he doesn't want to have to start over. Right. Um, yeah. And I and I would think too, it's there is something that when you have a great AD team that understands the director, the director can just focus on the one thing that they need to focus on. And you have all they're they're kind of walking in a bubble ahead of them, communicating to everybody and taking care of everything so everybody already understands. And it it's it's a major it makes a major difference. So yeah, I would that's a good question. Yeah, interesting. Great. How to do it awards season, Andrew? This was a popular one. 
22 wins, 47 other nominations. I mean, in consideration with something like uh, Saving Private Ryan, it might be a little different. But still, for Malik, it was definitely something that got some recognition. Over at the Oscars, it did get nominated for seven awards. Uh, Best Cinematography with Lost to Saving Private Ryan. Same thing, Best Director lost to Saving Private Ryan. Best Film Editing lost to Saving Private Ryan. And Best Sound lost to Saving Private Ryan. It was nominated for Best uh, Music Original Dramatic Score for Hans Zimmer's Wonderful Music, but lost to Life is Beautiful. Also wonderful music, but I would probably pick this over Life is Beautiful. Yeah, I, I would too. Uh, Best Adapted Screenplay uh, was nominated, but lost to Gods and Monsters. And last but not least, the big, uh, the big Weinstein win, Best Picture, it was nominated, but lost to Shakespeare in Love. Where, where do you stand on that, though? Where do you stand on that Shakespeare in Love? I like, I, I love Shakespeare in Love, but this was definitely the year that felt like those Weinsteins uh, were doing something to to fix the, the, the ballot box yeah. a little bit, because it definitely seemed like uh, Shakespeare in Love was kind of uh, a fan favorite, but likely wasn't going to be the winner. And then to see it win again, was it because there was like a splitting of the votes between the Saving Private Ryan people versus the Thin Red Line people? Totally. I don't know, but still, it was a bit of a surprise. And then over at the American Society of Cinematographer Awards, I just thought this was worth noting that John uh, Toll did win Outstanding Achievement in Cinematography in a theatrical release. It's like those people knew how to vote. <laughs> well, Saving Private Ryan does look good. <laughs> yeah, it really does. That's true. How to do it at the box office? Malik had a strong budget of $52 million, or $95.7 million in today's dollars. The movie was released for awards consideration with a limited release on five screens starting December 23rd, 1998, opposite Patch Adams, Stepmom, Mighty Joe Young, and The Faculty. It went wide on January 15th, where it jumped to number four at the box office for two weeks, and then went on to earn $36.4 million domestically and $61.7 million internationally for a total gross of $180.5 million in today's dollars. All told, it was a moderate box office success that was certainly buoyed by its awards buzz. Well, Ross, this has been a fantastic conversation about a fantastic movie. Thank you so much for uh, for coming and talking with us about it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been fun. Any last thoughts about the movie uh, or anything else that uh, you think people should uh, pay attention to when they check this one out? No, I mean, all I would say is if anybody hasn't seen uh, Badlands, uh, Days of Heaven, and Thin Red Line, if you just watch those three, that's your taste of Malik. And then we'll all together experience what happened after Tree of Life because I haven't, I haven't seen anything after that. <laughs> that's uh, right. That's right. Um, <laughs> oh, what an incredible shared experience you've offered us, Ross. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will say on the Blu-ray, I liked the little note when I hit play that a message pops up and says, just be aware that the director recommends that you turn your volume way up for this movie. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay. don't see that too often. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh well uh do you have any place out there that uh, you want people to check out to learn more about you i know you have your website and stuff uh, are you are you active on the socials or anything not super active on instagram i'm on it but uh so you can see some older stuff maybe i'll start posting again um it's just ross Regis is my instagram handle otherwise you know there's there's imdb and then uh that's about all i got uh, got a website, rossregi.com, but it's probably a little bit outdated. <laughs> <laughs> well, people can go there and check out what it is that you've been up to and everything. And uh, yeah, well, we certainly appreciate you joining us again. Thank you for, for being here to have this conversation with us today, Ross. Yeah, it was awesome chatting with you guys. Thank you. Very much. 
I got to say one. I got to say one more thing. We didn't say we we dropped the name once. Weird. The Al Yankovic story is. Oh, yeah. Awesome. We go watch that movie because Ross did that, too. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yes. It's a so wild good. ride. It's very fun. It's wild ride. And it's getting like it now that it's kind of out of the sort of Roku box like more people are seeing it and it's so great that it's getting attention uh and of course after party on apple tv plus fantastic so yes. much fun yes yeah please do now i'll shut up <laughs> no it's all all stuff worth checking out absolutely yeah. check all that stuff out everybody and uh that's it so thank you everybody for tuning in for all of you out there we hope that you like the show and certainly hope you like the movie like we do here on movies we like The Next Reel Presents Movies We Like is part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. The music is Chunk Clap by Out of Flux. Find the show at truestory.fm and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at The Next Reel. And remember, if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we always appreciate it if you drop one in there for us. See you next time. I love having these wonderful chats on movies we like with all these industry guests talking about some of their favorite movies. It's so many great conversations on that show about so many great movies. We have so much fun having these conversations, but producing the show week after week does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these incredible conversations. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all the adapted film discussions on The Next Reel's family of podcasts. Purchasing through our links supports the show. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy your copy of the original source material. Original material for movies we like, movies like Casino Royale. The Silent Partner. Never Let Me Go. Silver Linings Playbook. There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's Oil. I believe it's Oil! Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point. <laughs> Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. TheNextReel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's right. Head over to TheNextReel.com slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down 
the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.